Well, good morning. How are we doing today? All right. Woohoo! I heard one. Hope you're doing well today. Hey, uh, b- before I jump in this morning, a couple other real quick updates. Number one, if you're a newcomer here, thank you so much for joining us for, for worship today. We know we always have lots of newcomers on Sunday morning. We don't take that for granted. There's many things that you could do, especially on a frigid morning like this. Thank you for coming out for church today. If we haven't yet met, I'd love to connect with you after the service. Also, I want to say thank you to our Building and Grounds crew and the many volunteers who clear this parking lot every single time we have snow. Haven't they been great lately? (laughs) Ken Soderholm and his team have really stepped up as we've had a number of smaller snowstorms recently, and it seems like they've landed on Sundays. Go away, snow. So thanks to that team. Well, uh, we are in this series, God's Story, Our Story, and if you are here last week, you know we kind of launched the series with an introduction, an overview of where we'd be going through a 40-week series. We will take a couple five-week breaks along the way this year, but our goal this year is to understand God's self-disclosed will and word to us and understand the overarching narrative of God's story through 40 individual episodes in the Bible. It seems like a big goal, but I think we can do it. And one of the things that we want to really communicate along the way is that every one of us can read and understand the Bible for ourselves. Do you believe that? We can. We can read and understand the Bible for ourselves. We come here on Sunday morning, we get a meal, but throughout the week we need some more meals, right? We need some more meals. And so we've given this little... uh, Bible reading plan. It's about five or six chapters a week, sometimes seven or eight chapters a week, but it's, it's five days of reading, not more than one or two chapters a day. Each week, you get through it about 10 minutes a day, and if you haven't yet picked this up, you can do so at the information table. A quick note for your studies, if you want to read ahead for the next week's message, then just go on to the next week. Uh, the readings for this week's messages, this week's message relate to today's message, And so they'll help you to further understand what I speak about today. But if you want to read ahead toward next week, then read uh, as it relates to the thumbprint that remains for the following week. And we'll continue with that way throughout the series. Well, let's jump in. You know, the opening 11 chapters of the Bible are absolutely spellbinding. It goes from creation to image of God to fall and flood and babble in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. And it begins with this glorious portrait that is given to us in Genesis 1 and 2, and then it gets tragic, and then tragic again. And it stays that way through these opening chapters. And we're used to kind of digging into individual sentences or perhaps paragraphs of the Scripture when we read from Jesus or the Apostles Peter or Paul, we typically get the genre there is instruction. They give us instruction on how to live. Do this, don't do that. That's much easier for us to read and then apply to our lives. When you read in the Old Testament, you oftentimes encounter different genres than instruction. They're not any less truthful for us than what we find in the New Testament, but they are different genres, and so we're wise to pause and ask ourselves the question, what genre of literature am I reading here? In the Old Testament, you frequently read narrative, 
large stories that are communicated across seven, eight, ten chapters, or poetry, most of the Psalms are poetry, or history. And indeed, we have all three of those genres in the first chapters of the Bible. We won't spend a lot of time talking about that kind of literary analysis. It's kind of boring, I know. But it is important for us to pause and ask ourselves as we begin the book of Genesis and look at chapters 1, 2, and 3 this morning, what genre of literature are we looking at? And again, it's all of those narrative and history and perhaps even a little bit of poetry. Many of the early church fathers saw a bit of poetry even in Genesis 1. Now what the author is going to do here in these first three chapters of Genesis is answer a few questions for us. Number one, what is the character of God? Number two, what is the character of humanity? And then number three, what is the character of sin? What does it look like? What is the reason that, that we have fallen? And well, what does that look like? The character of God is first seen for us in creation. What are the first five words in the Bible? Anyone want to shout them out? Okay, that was a mumble. I asked for a shout, y'all. Okay, I want to shout them out. I heard it out loud from there. In the beginning, God created. And we learn a lot about God from those five words. Before there was anything, before there was such a thing as time, God was self-existent, eternal, omnipotent, all-powerful. He created out of nothing. Those five words speak all of those critical ideas about the character of God to us. He spoke and the universe leapt into existence. He gave the physical laws with all the electrons and the quarks and the cells by which the universe is sustained. You know, every single worldview has some position to tell us about human origins. Every worldview, every religion has something that it seeks to explain where did people come from, where did this earth, where did this universe come from. And there was a context in which Moses wrote into. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and as he's writing into the context in the ancient Near East, in around 15 or 1600 BC, the context is much like New Age religion of today. It turns out that there's nothing new about the New Age. New Age religion of today says that there is a oneness of all beings, a oneness between creator and created, that God is one with the universe. And that's what the ancient Near East religions that Moses is writing into believed as well, that there is no distinction between creator and created. Into that context, Moses writes, no, no. In the beginning, God was. And he spoke. The universe leapt into being and is distinct from the creator, such that we would not say, the earth is my mother. We'd say, God is our father, and he has created it all. Now, there's a number of important themes that we are looking for across this series, and you might remember from last Sunday that one of the most important themes, and the first one that we see here in Genesis chapter 1, is the self-disclosure by God of his nature and his will. 
God chooses to disclose to us his character, his nature, what he's like. And he begins to do this in the very first chapters of the Bible. I must say here that Christians will differ on many things related to Genesis 1 and 2, in case you didn't know. And uh, some Christians will say that uh, God did all of this 8 to 10,000 years ago. And many others well, would say, no, he did it a, a much, much longer time ago. And ultimately, that is an intramural, in-house debate. But I would argue that even more important than those questions related to when this happened or how long it took are these critical questions that Genesis 1 and 2 are seeking to answer for us. Who did it? And what did he do? Who did it was God all by himself with no help from humanity. The eternal God spoke and according to his glorious will to demonstrate his beauty, to be utterly creative and to invite humanity into relationship with him. This is what he did. He brought the heavens and the earth, the moon and the stars into existence. Now, if you open up your Bible to Genesis 1, we pick up the story there. Genesis 1 is on page 1. This is Moses, God's mouthpiece, speaking to us about God's creative workmanship, the glorious ways that he has made beauty all around us. It's, much of it is is written here. So verse 3 says, let there be light, and God separates the light from the dark, and you know at the end of each and every day it says it was good. He separates light from dark, and it says it was good. And then verse 6, he separates the water from the sky, and he pauses after looking at the water and the sky with its great expanse, and he says yet again, it was good, it was good. And then it goes on in verse 12, the land produces vegetation and he produces uh, flowers and trees and all the wonderful things that we get to eat, all the grains, and he pauses and says, it, it was good. And then he goes on in verse 20 to say, I, I want to put some creatures into the oceans and you imagine God creating jellyfish and seahorses. And then next he creates things like giraffes and leopards and peacocks, and says, it was good, it was good, it was good. The beauty of God being created again and again and again. You ever look at a peacock and just say, wow, look at that. You ever look at that and say, what could possibly be the purpose of all those glorious feathers? Anyone else? Charles Darwin wondered that. Darwin once stated, the sight of a feather in a peacock's tail, whenever I gaze at the sight of a feather in a peacock's tail, it makes my stomach sick. Why would he say that? Because there is a beauty there that is non-functional. There is a beauty there that cannot be explained merely by random mutation and natural selection. It's the beauty of God just saying, wow, how you like that? It's kind of like, will you watch the Winter Olympics? Anyone? R raise your hand with me if you will. 
Anyone like figure skating? Any men willing to admit it with me? Okay, I like figure skating a little bit. Uh, <laughs> if you watch figure skating, you might watch some amazing athlete land a quadruple axle. Four rotations in the air. Land on the ice and say, boom. Look at that. Wow, look at that. You like art? You like looking at Van Gogh paintings? I do. You look at Van Gogh's lilies of the field, it's like, beat that, y'all. I mean, that's just the glory of an artist kind of showing off. And this is God with a peacock or a human eye or a seahorse, and on and on we could go. If you've been around me for a while, you have probably heard me reflect on the joy of just getting out in nature and looking at the expanse of the stars in the universe, the millions of stars and the beauty though, that we see out there when we go camping and look into the night sky. It's one of the great things about living in Kearney. I can see the stars again. I came far from the city where I couldn't see the stars too often. It's a joy just to go out and look at them. I've been fascinated on a macro level with God's creation for a long, long time, but recently I've become increasingly fascinated also by God's work at a micro level. Do you know at the level of an individual single cell, you look at an individual single cell, science has showed us that in an amoeba, you have all these little machines that are operating together in concert with each other. You got a nucleus and you got mitochondria and these machines that are working together to put, put together all of the right sequence for, for your DNA and your human genome and the genes that, that you have. And indeed, in a single cell, one cell, there's enough information in a single cell with all the A's and C's and T's and G's in the DNA structure of one cell, which we can't even see well with the naked eye, to fill up a thousand copies of Encyclopedia Britannica. This is one copy right here. I don't know if I could fit a thousand copies on this huge stage. That's how much information is in one of our cells. Seems like design to me, how about you? Francis Crick, who discovered the structure of the DNA molecule back in 1953, learned all of this within a single cell, and he was so struck by it that this man who called himself an agnostic said, armed with the knowledge available to us now, the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. Seems like it was a miracle. The level of information and the very basic building block of life that enabled life to come into be. It's simply amazing. Well, when you look at it at the macro level or at the micro level, I, I pray that you look at what God has done for from time to time and you reflect along with the psalmist. When I look up to the hills, my eyes look up to the hills, where does my help come from? Ah, my help comes from the Lord the maker of the hills, the maker of the heavens and the earth, the maker of the rivers and the lakes and the oceans and the individual cells. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Now all of that which God was doing was extraordinarily good, but 
He said he wasn't done yet, and he said he, he hadn't even reached the pinnacle of his creation. And so if you look again at Genesis 1, verse 26, he comes to the pinnacle of his creation, and he says this about you and me. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. What a curious phrase this is. I, I hope you'll enter, underline it or highlight it in your Bible. Let us make mankind in our image. What a curious phrase for a fiercely monotheistic Jewish man named Moses to write in Hebrew. Let us make mankind in our image. Do you hear even there in Genesis 1 the notes of the triune God? Notes of Trinity here. Of course there were pronouns in Hebrew that he could have just said, let me make mankind in my image. But instead it says, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness because there at the very beginning was not just God the Father, but also God the Son and God the Spirit working together out of their beautiful relationship. One God, three persons, very hard to get our minds around, but we apprehend it far from Scripture, speaking and leaping the universe into existence and say, let's make some in our image and invite them into precious relationship with us. That God himself was in relationship eternally with himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, far from the very beginning. And then he makes Adam and he says, mm, would you look at that? Very good. And I'm convinced every single time he makes any person, every single time he stitches together any boy or girl in their mother's womb, he pauses and says, mm, very good. The character of God is first seen in creation. And then, the character of humanity is first seen in the image of God. We see God's character first in the work that he has done. Then we see our nature in what he has imbued into us, which is a thumbprint of his image and likeness that we just read from Genesis 1.26. The first two chapters of the Bible speak so much about who God is is and who we are and the image and the likeness of God affirms God's generosity and love for all people it's more fundamental than even our human sinfulness did you know that that God says you are made in my likeness that is the beginning point even bigger than our failures is the fact that God says you personally are made in his image and in his likeness such that the natural result for us would be to love one another. The natural result would be for us to pause and say, who am I blessing and who am I cursing? And what needs to change if they also have the thumbprint of God on them? It's so good that we're talking about this just a little bit here on this Martin Luther King Day weekend and Sanctity of Life Sunday, in which we as Americans get to say, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created equal, that all men are created equal and endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable gifts, amongst them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That all stems from what we believe out of Genesis 1, 26, and 27, 
that you and I are made in the image and likeness of God. Can I get an amen? Uh, This is what we believe. It's so powerful. This is the soul. This is the essence of who you are as a man or woman made in the likeness of God. It's so important to us that next week we're going to devote an entire week to it. I want, to, I want to be sure that you come back next Sunday to hear this message. I'm so excited to share it, but because we'll be speaking about what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God and how God has specifically differentiated us from all of the other creations that he has made. That he's given us a reason and a will and an ability to have co-dominion underneath his rule. That we're made for relationships. We're made to create and on and on. It's going to be such an important message. Do not miss it, okay? Anyone? Okay? All right. I'm a talkback preacher, y'all. Okay? All right. As Genesis continues, God, again, he, he makes man in his image. He makes Adam. And I should imagine there's a beautiful conversation in heaven between Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they look down at Adam and they say, well, that was pretty good. But I think we can do better. So he makes a woman. And he does a whole lot better. And things were really, really good for at least a time. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. What do you see there? You see a boundary and a consequence. One boundary and a consequence. Keep that idea in your mind. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So he makes glorious Eve and everything is good. It's so beautiful, at least for a while. They're there together. And I mean, could you imagine those of you who are married, having a marriage that is absolutely devoid of selfishness? You have two people together, and there's no selfishness between either one. They have each other. They have a beautiful land. They have great work to do. God has blessed it all and called it very good. And things are very good for a while. But then, as you know, this wicked tempter comes in to the story, and he's much more than merely a serpent He comes and he tempts them, and and this serpent, in fact, is spoken of at the end of the story in Revelation 12, that he's thrown down from heaven to earth because of his pride and wanting to take the throne of God. He's thrown down, and he comes to Adam and Eve, and he brings with him these temptations. And notice what what he does as he comes to them in chapter 3, verse 4. He says to Adam and Eve, you will not certainly die. What just happened there? He lies to them about what God just said. Not only that, but he calls into question before these two people the character of God. He's holding out on you. You won't die. He's lying to you. This is the nature of the enemy as well. He tries to trick and twist the word of God. So here he is twisting the word of God. He says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is holding out on you. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was standing there idly by, passively watching. This is still the sin of Adam, isn't it? The passivity of so many men that we need to learn once again to accept responsibility and reject passivity and stand up for what is good and right and take initiative and go after God and the people he has given to us. So she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the, God, sound of the Lord their God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what'd they do? They hid. They went into hiding from the Lord God because of their shame. What just happened here? I mean, tragedy of all tragedies. They got everything that we could possibly want. You put a boundary on me. Who are you to put a boundary on me? Who are you, creator, to tell me what tree I can't eat from? I mean, they're given all the rest, but they're discontent because of one boundary. Oh! Then they go into hiding. They go into shame. They realize they cannot stand with confidence before God when before they could stand with confidence before God. And then they begin blame shifting to each other as the story goes on in the rest of Genesis 3. I'm not going to read it right now, but I encourage you to read it later today. They go on to blame game with each other. And Adam says to God, God, it's your fault. You put the woman here. It was all good till you put the woman here. It's your fault, God, and it's her fault. She gave me the fruit. To which the woman looks at the man and says, you better ask somebody. Who do you think you are? You were standing there idly by. You were happy to eat that fruit all by yourself. You didn't need much cajoling from me. Beyond that, the devil made me do it. You hear the blame shifting going on there? Okay. This is the initial part of the story. And the tragic reality for all of us is it's not just their story. It's, it's my story. Anyone else? It's our story. Genesis 1 through 3 is a little bit dark. It begins with the beauty of creation, the beauty of the image of God, but then it devolves into this mess with this fall. I'd like you to take a look at this video, which speaks in a really profound way to Genesis 1 through 3. Some of you really learn well through the spoken word, others through the visual word. So take a look at this as we seek to understand the story a little bit better. The serpent, snake, was the savviest of all of the creatures in the creator's perfect planet. 
The reptiles surveyed the scene with keen snake eyes. Streetwise, armed with an arsenal of plausible lies, he slithered up to Eve, the woman from her blind side, preserving the element of surprise. And he said, hello, child. How was your day? I overheard your conversation. I just had one simple question. Exactly what did the creator say? That thing about the tree, the evil and the good, how do you know that you understood? Did he really say what you think you heard? Maybe your mind twisted up the words. Did he say hands off all the plants? Don't look, don't touch, don't taste. What a waste that would be. Eve, the woman, pointed out the tree with the taboo. The tree of the knowing, the good and evil too. She told the snake that God had made it drop dead clear that everything else was free, every other tree. But if they took one tiny taste of the fruit of this particular one, they would absolutely, positively crash and burn. said the snake, faking genuine concern. The deity's afraid of what you're gonna learn. With just one bite, you be just like him. Eyes wide open, knowing the heights of what humans can do, knowing the depths, the despicable too. God would have no tactical advantage over you. You and your man could have the run of the place, total control over the food you eat, the life you live, the path you choose. With just one small bite, you could gain the whole green world. And that means that God of yours would lose. The woman Eve walked closer and closer to the tree. She sniffed and felt fruit against her cheek. Totally wise, with open eyes, she said. What's wrong with that? Maybe my man and I were born for this. Born to know, born to control, born to rule. She swallowed hard and it was done. She gave some to her covenant partner, Adam. He opened his mouth and gobbled it down, and the universe was silent. It was the cool part of the day, and God was walking walking through the land he made his ecosystem so magnificently put together about to erode about to implode before his sad and timeless eyes he took one long last look 
and kiss the innocents. Goodbye. Adam? Where you hiding, son? Eve? Girl? What have you done? Ground. It's broken now. Under a curse. From bad to worse. Now your eyes are wise and clear. Now you know shame. Now you know fear. Now you know you're naked. Now you run for cover. Well, here's what's gonna happen. Life will be shorter. Pain will be greater. Work be harder, grinding it out by the sweat on your brow, the blood on your hands, Eve and Adam, even the bond you have will now be strained, slightly off, distorted, reframed. And as for you, reptile snake, Adam will crush your head, you will strike and bite his heel, you will feel the weight of the consequences of what you've done for he looked them in the eye with a sigh. It's broken now, he said. And the serpent? He just smiled. Pretty powerful, huh? That's kind of the way episode one of the story ends. It ends with this note that comes from the original couple, but it's our story as well. It's this urge for independence from God. You know, I, I've sometimes uh, kind of imagined, would I have done what they did? You ever wonder that? I think I would. At one point or another, I would have. Because there is this urge in humanity to live independent from God. It's the very first sin, this desire to be independent from our creator. It was their sin, and it continues to be our first and ongoing natural human failure. Particularly us as Westerners, right? We say, I'm looking out for me, myself, and I. I don't want too many boundaries on my life. Anyone else? That's just who we are in the West. We, we, don't, we don't care for that. Uh, your former pastor, uh, Mike Shields, wonderful, wonderful pastor here, used to be fond of saying, you know that song by Frank Sinatra, I Did It My Way? We like that song. It feels kind of bold and courageous. I'm going to do it my way. Mike Shields used to say, that's the song that's playing in hell. I'm going to do it my way. God, enough of you. 
And God, being the gentleman that he is, will allow us to do it our way. He allows us to live, if we wish, outside of his boundaries, either for time or even for eternity. And as a gentleman, he says, okay, have it your way. Friends, the two sides of the human coin are right here in Genesis 2 and 3. The first side is we are made in the image and likeness of God and it's glorious. The other side that we all wrestle with is this fall into selfishness that I'm looking out for my interests as opposed to God's interests and other people's interests. And this urge for independence is what drives a wedge in our relationship with God. Life without boundaries is no life at all. The way we are made to thrive is living under God's boundaries. If I can tell you anything today in terms of application, it's this. Live within God's boundaries. Ask for his help every day to live within his boundaries. We tend to think that if we can be without boundaries, we'll have all kinds of freedom. But you show me a child who does not have boundaries, you'll quickly find an adolescent who doesn't have peace or joy. Am I right? And you'll quickly find parents who have no peace either. God invites us. He intends us. Very first thing, to live inside his boundaries. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Let's go after that, though, this week. Pursuing Christ, trusting him to forgive us of all of our failures. The promise at the end of this episode is God will rise up one in the seed of Adam. And that one who rises up in the seed of Adam will ultimately strike Satan's head. And this is the germ of promise that there will be a second Adam that, that arises later on in the story. And he goes all the way to the cross the first Adam represented us in our sin. The second Adam represents us by bringing our sin to God and giving us his righteousness such that we can be image bearers of God to a watching world this week. Are you with me? Let's ask for his help. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, how we need you. We see these initial words of your story and these initial words of our story and we just fall on our face and we say we, we deeply need you. Father, I have to personally admit that there is something in me that always wants to do things my way and I run into that every week. There's something in me that resists living under your boundaries And I run into that every week. And I don't know what's going on in this room amongst different people here, but I would imagine their story is much like mine. Because the human condition really isn't different across all of us. We're made by you for relationship with you, but we've all fallen into selfishness and a desire for independence. And we've paid the consequences for that. 
So, Father, right now we come before you. We come before the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and we ask for your forgiveness. Perhaps you even need to look at the cross right now. And as you do, I pray that you would know this is the work of the second Adam for you. He now represents you to God. He now brings your face before the Father and says, this one's my daughter. This one's my son. They belong to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you overcame the curse by your blood. We receive it today with thanksgiving. Know that we could never extricate ourselves from our own condition. We give you thanks for what you have done through Jesus Christ our Lord.